The storms that hovered over Germany and Belgium last week dumped two months of rain in a single day. 15 centimeters, or half a foot, over the Rhineland. That's an area of steep hills and shallow valleys that funneled the stuff into ravines where those six inches multiplied upon themselves hundreds of times over until they became walls of water up to five meters high, gushing, blundering through centuries-old villages, pulverizing half-timbered houses, killing more than 200 people. Chancellor Angela Merkel, a physicist with a PhD in quantum chemistry, wasn't shy about naming the cause. The sum of all the events we're experiencing in Germany, including the outbreak we're witnessing now, clearly indicates, if you believe the science, as you know I do, that it's related to climate change. She says, there are some fascinating models that explain why these stationary rainfalls occur. That means we have to do even more. Now, there will always be uncertainty about the link between climate change and individual catastrophes like this. That's why she emphasized the sum of all these events. But what did she mean by do even more? Did she mean we need to reverse climate change so these rains stop? Or did she mean we need to adapt to climate change so it doesn't wipe us out? Spoiler alert, we cannot adapt our way out of this mess, as my former colleague Allie Goldstein pointed out a few years back. Ecosystem services provide an estimated $143 trillion of value to the economy, which is more than the financial assets in the world. So it's very hard to replace things like the coastal protection value that mangroves provide, water filtration from upstream forests, pollination. You know, all those things are free only because they are provided for free by ecosystems. But once we lose them, we find that they're very expensive to replace. In other words, our economy depends on our ecology, and adaptation alone is not an option. Fortunately, Angela Merkel knows this, as we can tell by looking at, as she would put it, the sum of her comments over the decades. Don't forget, she was president of the very first Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the very first UN Global Climate Conference in 1995. And she's always been adamant about the need to both mitigate, meaning to slow or even reverse climate change, and the need to adapt to it. But as I sit here scrolling through the sites of Die Zeit, the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, and the Kölner Stadtanzeiger, that's two national German papers and one local one for the city of Cologne, most of the stories that I'm seeing are clearly focused on adaptation, the need for better warning systems, bigger floodplains, and better engineering. You know, obviously in the wake of a disaster like this, you're going to focus on the here and now or what you can control yourself. Germany is one of the better countries in terms of supporting mitigation globally, but there still seems to be a dangerous sense among too many people, both inside and outside Germany, and especially across my own home country, the United States, that we can adapt our way out of this. People talking about where should I move to? Where is it safe? The answer is nowhere. And that got me thinking of two conversations I had two years ago in Asheville, North Carolina, at an event called the Climate City Expo, which I covered on behalf of Ecosystem Marketplace. One of those conversations was with my former Ecosystem Marketplace colleague, Allie Goldstein, who we just heard from a few moments ago. She showed me a photo that really said it all. Okay, this is so cool. You've got this skyline, that's New York, right? Yeah. It's all dark, and you've got one building that's glowing. What's the story there? So this is the skyline on the eve of Superstorm Sandy in 2012, and Goldman Sachs is the only 
building that is lit up. They had a backup generator, obviously, which I guess must have been on a top floor of the roof rather than in the basement, and were able to keep their lights on all through the chaos of Sandy. And it became this iconic image in terms of their employees couldn't actually get to the building for several days after the storm. They were obviously doing better than the rest of the businesses that were without power, but the question of whether resilience on site is really enough. And they kept themselves out of trouble, but it didn't do them any good. They created an island that they couldn't get onto, basically. Yeah, exactly. An island on an island already. <laughs> but yes. An island on an island. I feel that way a lot when I hear people talking about climate adaptation how hilltop houses are increasing in value as people retreat from the seaside, or how Florida is going to build a massive dike around it like the Netherlands has. And that brings up my second conversation from that event. Since the climate is changing, obviously we're going to have to do adaptation. No question about that. This is Mark Trexler, a policy expert whose insights into the value of standing forests back in the early 1990s helped inform the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's early assessment reports. He also helped edit the special report on lands, which I've referenced quite often in this show. His comments, like Ali's, tragically, still hold up. What people aren't thinking about or talking about as much is when do we run into adaptation limits, the limits to adaptation? And can we adapt to two degrees? Probably. Can we adapt to two and a half degrees? Maybe. Can we adapt to three degrees? Probably not. Mm -hmm. And if you get to four, five, six degrees, then not a chance. And so the one opportunity with adaptation is the more you understand about adaptation, hopefully, the more you realize that we've got to get mitigating too, because adaptation won't help if we can't cap the amount of climate change we're grappling with. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, Add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we take a look at the danger of believing that we can simply adapt our way out of this mess. We cannot. My guests are Ali Goldstein, who is now the Director of Climate Protection at Conservation International, and Mark Trexler who wears too many hats for me to name right here, his main passion these days is mapping climate knowledge so that the rest of us aren't groping around in the dark. And he's essentially uploading his climate brain to the internet, as we'll see in the second half of the show. Now, these interviews are two years old, but the reason they still hold up is that mainstream climate coverage is still not where it should be. As a result, neither is awareness. Yeah, we almost all acknowledge now that climate change is happening and that man is the cause. But way too many people of influence still don't realize the enormity of this challenge. And if you don't believe me, check out PwC's most recent CEO survey on corporate risks. They still rank climate change ninth behind pandemics, which they didn't even think about last year, cyber threats, and that old boogeyman overregulation. Now, I started Bionic Planet in 2016 when mainstream outlets were still ignoring climate change. I started this on my own time and dime, and I rely on listeners to keep it going. If you think I'm doing a good job of translating these issues into plain English and putting them into context for you, and you want to hear more and better episodes, then help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com 
forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. The web address again is not the Bionic Planet website, but the Patreon website with Bionic Planet tacked onto the end. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Bionic Planet. And if you want to make a larger donation, maybe a few thousand, which would help me generate a couple of episodes, I'm also fiscally sponsored through Manga Bay as a nonprofit, which means you can make a tax-deductible donation, which can help me generate a lot of episodes and even contract a sound designer or a second set of ears. For that, you can email me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. And I'll repeat that later in the show. Finally, you can also help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. We'll start with Allie Goldstein, who was in Asheville to share findings from a paper that she published in the journal Nature called The Private Sector's Climate Change Risk and Adaptation Blind Spots, which I'll link to in the show notes. She updated these findings in 2020 for the Global Commission on Adaptation, and that paper is called Persistent Business Blind Spots on Climate Risk and Adaptation, which I'll also link to in the show notes. We allude to a few people in this interview who have since changed jobs. Jillian Gladstone was at CDP when we did the interview, and she's now at Climate Focus. We also talk about Bronson Griscom, who's been on this show twice and was at the Nature Conservancy when we did the interview. He's now at Conservation International, where he's Allie's boss. Obviously, as a conservation organization, we're interested in how companies are using nature or not to adapt to impacts of climate change. But it it ended up becoming a larger project because when we were looking at the science out there on private sector risk, we really couldn't find a, a comprehensive study. So that's essentially what we set out to do. And it turned into the largest and widest private sector adaptation study to date in terms of the number of companies. So over 1,600 companies covering 69% of market capitalization. So using voluntary disclosures to CDP, best known, of course, for its greenhouse gas disclosures, but also has a wealth of data on risk and adaptation strategies that no one had really looked at, primarily because it's these like long text responses and it took us months to, to analyze it and turn it into and turn it into data. Um, so these guys, so basically CDP had sent out all these questionnaires to companies and these companies had responded? Yeah, exactly. So they send out an annual questionnaire on behalf of investors. Yeah, I would almost put it in this kind of in-between voluntary and mandatory space. I think some companies, if most of their shareholders are asking for this, it's not really that voluntary to do Mm -hmm. it. And CDP now has 650 institutional investors with over 100 trillion in assets that are asking for these disclosures. So most of the largest companies in the world now do disclosed through that survey. Okay. And the 1,630 companies, that's all the companies in CDP's database, or did you also skim off, or did you have a filter on top of that? We were looking at 2016 disclosures. I guess it's important to note that it's a couple years old, but it's a peer-reviewed study, so it took a couple years to actually get it published. And the 1,630 were of a total pool of 1,959. So those were the companies that actually said that they faced a climate risk in that year. So it's about 83% that said they um, Mm -hmm. had experienced a climate risk in the last year. Okay. And then you pulled out these 100 adaptation strategies. Mm -hmm. Were these... You, did you identify these or were these already in the CDP data? I identified them with... So my co-authors are... Will Turner and Dave Hole at Conservation International and Trillian Gladstone at CDP. So we used a process called content analysis, which essentially is 
qualitative data analysis where you read the responses and put them into categories and then you compare notes and, and go back several times. And our goal was basically to come up with a minimum number that would cover the, the breadth of adaptation strategies without being redundant. So there were 104 adaptation approaches that we came up with overall and then those kind of umbrellaed up into soft, hard, and nature-based adaptation, so the three overarching categories. Which we'll get to in a second. And then what you did is you looked at these adaptation strategies, but then you also looked at their their perception of risk. That was the main thing you were... Right. You looked at what do the what do we perceive the risk to be, and then you looked at what what does science say the risk is. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So in addition to a description of the adaptation strategy, the CDP survey also has a question about what are the financial implications of this risk, and then what are you spending to manage it. And believe it or not, it's not at all easy to add up those numbers those costs, both of the risk and the management strategy, are reported in text. Mm. So if you're an investor that invests in thousands of companies and is looking at what the financial impacts of climate change are to your investments, right now you would have to read hundreds or thousands of text responses to get at that number. So we essentially did that work for investors for one year. I'm not going to wow. do it again. But, <laughs> um, what were some of the most more interesting costs that you came across? Like things where you went, oh my God, I never thought of that. Yeah, there were a lot of airlines that were reporting, I won't pretend to understand the the science behind this completely, but changes in the jet stream and essentially when air is hotter, it has less lift. There was a couple of days in, in Phoenix, Arizona last year where they actually had to ground flights because it was too hot to take that, off. Yeah. But even on days where it's not that extreme, increases in heat may mean that airplanes are not able to carry as heavy a load. And so there were actually airlines that were assessing the cost of those risks. Another one that was eye-opening was construction companies that were having to build heat shelters because their employees were getting heat stroke in the middle of hot days. And so they actually had to change their construction plans to have a break in the middle of the day and go inside of this new heat shelter that they built and have a mandated break in the middle of the day. So there were construction companies mm-hmm. that were assessing the cost, essentially both of having less time worked and and building those heat structures. Wow. And these are the costs that have already been identified. And then yeah. you looked at the costs that they hadn't identified, and you looked at five blind spots, things that companies consistently missed, and then you broke it out. And wonder if we could walk through those here, because this I found really interesting. Sure. So we identified five major gaps between what the science is telling us about climate risk and what companies are understanding about the risk. And just to note, we looked just at physical impact, so not the transition risks of transitioning to a low carbon economy, but just what physically will affect businesses in terms of extreme typhoons and sea level rise, heat, etc. For instance, the Economist Intelligence Unit estimated in terms of the risk to manageable assets was $4.2 to $43 trillion, whereas companies were reporting risks in the tens of billions in aggregate, so about two orders of magnitude off what economists are saying is the risk. It's very difficult to assess the cost of climate risk because there it depends on how much we choose to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That's really the driving source of uncertainty in in economists' ranges of the costs. And it's interesting because that's a source of uncertainty that's actually in our control. What we do as a society really matters in terms of what the, the costs of these risks in 2050, 2100 will be. But yeah, I would say companies are both underestimating and just not estimating at all. Only one in five companies actually came up with a number in terms of what the risk would cost to their business. And then the second one, you've got climate change risks and adaptation strategies, quote, beyond the fence line. And this is the image we opened with. You've got the glowing Goldman Sachs sitting alone in this darkened skyline. And what do you mean beyond the fence line? 
So some companies do have an actual fence line around their direct operations, mm -hmm. but for most it's uh, a concept. I like to think of this in terms of scope one, two, and three adaptation. You have to define that though. Yeah, so <laughs> it's usually used for greenhouse gas emissions. So scope one is your direct operations. Scope two is not that relevant for adaptation, but it has to do with your purchased energy. And then scope three is your supply chain. So the vast majority of companies are looking at risk to their direct operations. So that's like the factory that they own, the stores where they sell their goods, maybe the transportation systems that they own, but they're not looking at risk to their supply chains, to their employees or to their customers. So some companies are doing that, about 15% reported risk to their supply chain, but it should be 100% in yeah. my mind. Can you provide yeah. an, an example? Of looking at supply chain yeah, risk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So coffee is a really sensitive crop to temperature and precipitation. And there is science that shows that 50% of the area where coffee is currently grown will not be viable for coffee in the future. Wow. So if you're a coffee company and you're not looking at that, um, you're not preparing for impacts in the future. Coffee companies that are actively preparing for the climate of the future would be actually working with farmers in their supply chain, possibly identifying areas where they currently source, where they might need to help people transition out of coffee into other crops, building new supplier relationships in new areas that are becoming more and more viable for coffee, etc. Mm -hmm. Let's go on to the next one here. We've got... Blind spot three, the potential for ecosystem-based adaptation. So what, I think I know what you're, where you're going, but I'll let you tell us. Sure. So we found only 3.3% of companies were using, were using ecosystem-based wow. adaptation to address impacts. So the, that's everything from agroforestry to upstream watershed management, so doing forest restoration upstream to coastal protection of ecosystems such as mangroves and wetlands that provide a lot of a lot of flood risk reduction. So it could be that companies are doing those things, but they don't see them as adaptation approaches that investors would be interested in. Um, but I, th I think there is a clear tendency towards hard infrastructure and technology. Almost half of companies were investing in things like desalination plants and seawalls, so that kind of hard infrastructure right, that right. You, you typically think of. And that's something we see over and over again. That's what the report, my, it's like one of my one of my touchstone reports, which is Brunson Griscom's report from TNC. Yeah, the Natural yeah. Climate Solutions report, yeah. 37% yeah. of the solution, 3% of the finance, 1% of the media attention, that's just. Yeah, that's just on the climate mitigation side. Right. So we can come up with actually similar numbers on the adaptation side. 3% of the approaches for companies, yeah, we don't know how much it should be since there's not That's a not, common unit. Right. But we know yeah. how many are doing it. 3% are doing it. The potential might only be for 20%. It doesn't yeah. mean 100%. It doesn't mean that there's only 3% of the potential being met, but, it, but we know it could be more than 3%. Yeah, I would say you could look at it by sectors, like 100% of food and beverage companies, 100% of pharmaceutical companies, a lot of insurance companies should be doing this. Whether it's relevant for a, well, an apparel company, yes, because they source raw materials mm -hmm. from land, of course, like cotton and rubber. Yeah, actually, I'm struggling to come yeah, up with a sector yeah, it wouldn't be relevant all, for. But yeah, we're all embedded in these living ecosystems. And, yeah. yeah. So let's see, what's the next one? Blind spot four kind of related the cost of adaptation. Yeah, so this was the flip side to the cost of the risk. So looking at how many companies disclosed a number basically on what they were spending to manage for climate risk. So only 27% of companies, so about one in four, did come up with a dollar figure. And only six companies reported a return on investment. So that's six out of more than 1,600. Four companies wow. reported yeah. a negative dollar value to reflect the fact that the management cost was actually less than the cost of the risk. Say that again, I didn't understand you. <laughs> <Sorry>. So 
<laughs> so for the management costs, there were four companies that reported a negative value to indicate that they had actually saved money over time. Okay. Which so they had adapted it, and by doing so, they saved money. Yeah. The typical example is installing energy efficiency technology gotcha, in response right. to extreme heat or just in- increased temperature. So that energy efficiency technology, the cost of it would actually be less than the increased cost of electricity gotcha, over time. Right. Yeah. They, over, they overcompensated and that's a good thing. Yeah. But from a purely economic perspective, probably all management costs should be be negative since you should be implementing adaptation up to the cost, but not more than the cost of the risk. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. All right. And one more. Nonlinear climate risks and the need for radical change. So what does this mean? This means that things change quickly. I don't go, it does things don't climb. It, we don't, it's not like a straight line, a diagonal line. It's a change comes in jumps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's this quote I like from a different study that, let's see, it's by Wynn et al. What's the name of the report? Does it have that or just? Yeah, from a study on impacts from climate change on organizations, a conceptual foundation. And they essentially find that that companies have an enduring assumption that current economic and social conditions will continue to flourish regardless of unfavorable biophysical conditions in Earth's natural and climate systems. So essentially it's this psychological bias that we all have that Mm. the Earth will continue to provide us with all we need despite us using it as a punching bag. The sun will still shine, the rains will still come, the grass will still grow. Just yeah. a little bit different pace, maybe. It's like they, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's hard for people to conceive of radical change unless they've lived through a Katrina or a Sandy yeah. or some of the typhoons in the Philippines or extreme heat or a flood until you experienced an impact like that firsthand, which I thankfully haven't. But I think once you see your house underwater, then you're like, okay, it is possible for things to change overnight. And so the most recent report um, from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change talked about these tipping points, such as the melting of the Greenland ice sheet. Which which releases all sorts of methane. Yeah. yeah, but there could be a tipping point at which huge blocks of ice break off all at once and accelerate sea level rise to a point that it could be seven meters of sea level rise by the end of the century, which is just like incomprehensible thing. It's like most coastal cities are underwater at that mm-hmm. point. Another example is around three degrees Celsius. There could be unprecedented losses to biodiversity. We're already in the in the sixth mass extinction, but mm-hmm. it could accelerate even faster. And we don't know exactly what the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that will cause that. Right, right. But we know that there might be a tipping point that's sort of a point of no return. You know, I don't necessarily want to call out the private sector because I don't think that the, the public sector or really anyone is thinking about how to prepare for those risks in a meaningful way. But most of the adaptation approaches by companies were looking at incremental change and basically assuming that we had some time. And, you know, I think we do have time. I don't, it's, there's some impacts that aren't an emergency. You know, we can plan for a sea level rise, for instance, over the next 30 years if we start now. But companies like PG&E and their recent uh, bankruptcy filing have been an eye-opener in terms of there were scientists that warned of increased risks of fire and the company was planning for it but they essentially thought they had more time than they did yeah yeah but we keep having these eye openers eyes keep being open but people still have blinders on yeah i think it's hard to think about this stuff it makes you like wanna hide (laughs) Um, and unless it's your job to think about it have you perceived any resonance since this report came out are people paying attention to it are eyes opening wider are blinders coming off or has this is this just gone off into the ether and that's it um 
I think people are paying attention. I mean, it underscored the findings from the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which is a task force that was formed by the Financial Stability Board in 2015 around this idea of the tragedy of the horizon. So the fact that by the time climate change became a defining issue for financial markets, it may already be too late to address the problem. And and so Mark Carney, the chairman of the FSB, set up this task force with kind of the hunch that companies were not disclosing accurately on climate risk. And so they came out with a really great set of recommendations, I think at the end of 2017, that essentially set some guidelines on what and how companies should be disclosing. So the main recommendations were to look at two main categories of risk. So one is transition risk, expected costs of a price on carbon. The transition to a low carbon economy will cost your business. And then physical risk, which is all the things I looked at. There's obviously a relation between those two things in terms of the lower the cost of transition risk in terms of we choose not to transition than the higher costs of the, the physical risks and vice versa. So mm-hmm. if you spend more to transition to a low carbon economy as a globe, yeah. you'll face lower physical risks. And then... But if you as an individual spend more to transition and the rest of us don't, you're still facing the same physical risks. Right. That's the the the, the reason we need policy primarily yeah. and the, is the major collective action problem of climate change and Mm. why it's such a hard problem to address. And then they also recommended that companies use scenario analysis to look at risks under different greenhouse gas scenarios. So I don't think they specified which ones, but there's obvious options in the IPCC or in, in national assessments of business as usual one, Paris Agreement implementation one, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's also this issue that you alluded to before, which is that we should look at sustainability as a financial risk management issue. Yeah. And that was that from the, the task force or that's more of a general like, can you maybe elaborate on that? Yeah, we looked at the evolution of greenhouse gas disclosures, and there's been some research on this in terms of what gets companies to disclose accurately. The number one thing is mandatory rather than voluntary reporting. Also important is how is essentially where the disclosure and the responsibility sits within the company. So if it's just within the sustainability team, it's less accurate than if it's in kind of core operations. Sustainability guys, they pat them on the head. They say, good job. You make us look good and leave us alone. Whereas if if you're in, if you're in the real risk team, you're helping us avoid the tidal waves kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And it's a bit puzzling to be honest that a lot of companies don't consider climate risk to be financially material when groups like the economists are saying it could affect up to 30% of manageable assets. So I think the threshold for financial materiality is obviously much less than 30%. I think it's like- What does that mean, the threshold for financial materiality? So it basically (laughs) is what you have to report to investors, like legally. So in your 10K of hiling in the United States or in, in- I don't know what the tax forms are in different countries. But But who's going to force it? There was one of the other panels, there was a woman from the World Bank had talked about how if you're in a developing country, forcing this disclosure might cause capital flight. Mm -hmm. So there's so many weird little things that can come in. How are we going to get companies to, to disclose? And then how are we going to handle the fallout from that? How do we avoid things like capital flight? We're talking mostly about multinational companies that make billions of dollars a year. There is actually a law in France that mandates climate risk disclosure. It's the first country that has made this kind of not a voluntary exercise. And I think in the financial sector, it's companies that have 50 million euros in assets and above. So yeah, there is a a cutoff in terms of who should bear the burden of the disclosure. But that makes sense. Yeah, there are risks to, to disclosure as well, so it's definitely a good thing to think about. And the last thing you have on the antidotes, you have partnerships for collective action. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it goes to the point about most companies focusing on risks to their direct operations, and I don't. I think that's a logical place to start. Obviously, you have to 
start somewhere and looking at your direct footprint is the logical place to start. But in order to get into some of those supply chain impacts and wider impacts to customers and employees, you're going to need to look at a landscape scale, at a watershed scale, or across a supply chain. And in order to actually implement adaptation approaches at that scale, partnership is necessary. And I also think that it helps overcome this kind of key collective action problem that I don't want to be the only one investing when a lot of people yeah. had the benefits of my investment. Mm-hmm. So it's a shared cost thing as well. Yeah, that's one problem we're having with these global supply chains is that a large number of companies have made investments in in sustainable agriculture and doing things right. And they've incurred a lot of cost to do that, but they're not actually getting a premium in the market. And now they're actually pushing for regulation. This is something, Mm. it's happening quietly. I was at the TFA 2020 meeting last year and representatives from a lot of, they were speaking off the record. I'm not going to name names. And this is, again, this is the frustrating part. These companies have the ability, they have the weight to make something happen and they know that they need to have a mandate. They need, it's, it can't be the private sector alone. The public mm-hmm. sector has to step up. They all want someone to push for it, but they don't want to push for it themselves. Mm. So who's going to push? Is it it's us? Is it again this or who's someone out there listening? Somebody who, who's going to make this happen? I guess we're coming back to the same thing. We've got France, but. Um, yeah, I think like water funds are a good example of a bunch of companies that get together and say we're going to do forest restoration and different measures to actually manage water, which is a shared asset across a watershed. Yeah, and on, this is on the mitigation side, but Walmart has um, Project Gigaton, which is an effort to reduce a billion tons of emissions in their supply chain. And hundreds of their suppliers have signed up since getting the attention of Walmart as a supplier is obviously an economic incentive for that. And so I think when big retailers kind of ask for, even just asking a question, have you assessed your risk can make a a big difference. And then there starts to be a domino effect in your supply chain. And a quick note, since we conducted the interview, Pacific Gas and Electric, that's PG&E that Ali referred to, they came out of bankruptcy and they put $5.4 billion in cash and 22% of their stock into a trust for victims of wildfires caused by their equipment. And as for Project Gigaton, it's now up to 2,300 suppliers. when mainstream outlets were still ignoring climate change. I started this on my own time and dime, and I rely on listeners like you to keep it going. If you think I'm doing a good job of translating these issues into plain English and putting them into context for you, and you want to hear more and better episodes, then help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. The web address, again, is not the Bionic Planet website, but the Patreon website, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. If you want to make a larger donation, I'm also fiscally sponsored through Manga Bay as a nonprofit, which means you can make a tax-deductible donation, which can help me generate a lot of episodes and even contract a sound designer or second set of ears. The amount of time it takes to put these shows together, you'd be surprised. This one, a simple one with two interviews, still took about three days of editing, going through and digging out the ums and the ahs and the transgressions and then laying out the opening so that there's some context. It takes a while and I can use some help and I'd also like to cut back on my freelance work, which, uh, which I can do if I'm getting paid more for this. So if you want to make a tax-deductible donation... You can reach out to me directly. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. 
bionic-planet.com. Once again, steve at bionic-planet.com. And I'll repeat that at the end of the show as well. Finally, you can help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. next guest is Mark Trexler, whose name you may recall from episode 49 of Bionic Planet, The Birth of Forest Carbon. Mark wasn't a guest in that episode, but his work featured prominently because he was an early pioneer in modeling the impact of human activities on deforestation, and he edited key chapters of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Changes, or IPCC's Year 2000 Special Report on Lands. His real passion these past few years has been the Climate Web, which you can find at climateweb.com. That's climateweb.com. Climate Web is a tool for mapping out research on all things climate using an associative tool called the brain. It integrates the work of thousands of experts across hundreds of topics, so you're not floundering around the internet looking for random connections. It's very visual, and if you find this intriguing, you can check out a YouTube video called Actionable Knowledge Through the Climate Web. That's Actionable Knowledge Through the Climate Web. You can Google that or check the show notes for a link. Jumping into the climate web without guidance can be confusing, so he's created some roadmaps as well, which you can find at Systemic Roadmap Light, that's L-I-T-E, Light, like Bud Light, dot climatesites.net. Once again, systemic risk roadmap light dot climatesites.net. And I will drop that into the show notes as well. So if you don't have a pen and paper handy, if you're in the middle of uh, some sets at the gym, don't worry about it. You just check the show notes. Uh, the roadmaps will drop you into the part of the climate web that you're interested in, such as climate risk, net zero, or natural climate solutions. Climate Web is free, but he also offers a premium version that lets you download the software for a faster and more powerful experience. He also offers structured paid products like your Climate Change MBA and your Climate Change PhD. We started out on a map within the Climate Web that showed the increased likelihood of forest fires in the western United States as temperatures rise. This is a, looks like a map of the Western United States. It's a, basically a map of the Western United States that was done by, for the IPCC in 2010. And mm-hmm. it's looking on an ecosystem by ecosystem basis at the amount of area that you expect to see burned every year per one degree C of temperature increase. And what it does is for each ecosystem, and it's a very colorful mosaic of a graphic, for each ecosystem, it gives you a different number. And so it goes all the way from 75%, I think is about the lowest, to 750% at the highest range. So that means that we'll see per one degree C, we'll see 75% more area burned in one ecosystem per year and 750% as much burned every year in the most sensitive. It's fascinating to see uh, along the coast of California, oh, it's 231%. I thought it was 23%. No, that's 231. And then when you get into the drier parts of California and up into the mountains, it's 312%. And then some parts, it uh, looks like Nevada is only 73%. At the low end, although another part of Nevada there is 283%. So it's very ecosystem specific mm-hmm. as to how sensitive that particular system is to temperature. And this just crystallizes everything. And in, in the case that I was describing of putting this up on the wall for senior decision makers at a Fortune 100 company that had never thought about climate change as a business issue before, they suddenly saw there are transmission lines here, there are distribution chains for their products, there are supply chains for their products. They said, geez, if the fire regimes are changing this dramatically per one degree C, that makes it a business issue for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is what you what was the word you used? Actionable. This really was actionable knowledge for them. It totally changed the way they were thinking about climate change from a business perspective. Okay. And they they made different decisions going forward on the basis of having seen this one graphic. Where would I find this if I'm online? Or can I find it online? You start at theclimateweb.com. 
Mm-hmm. And it, then you sign up just so that we have your email address and then we'll send you to the link for the climateweb.org basically and you can get into the climate web. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is a great way of this is a, a research tool. Let's just walk through it. At last in the last episode, Ellie Goldstein talked about systemic risk and it's something that no one's looking at. If I, let's say I want to write an article about systemic risk or learn something about it. Right. Where do I go? What do the I- simplest way we we could go into the index and work our way through and, yeah. and eventually find systemic risk or we can go up into the search field Okay. Let me just describe the screen. This is how the screen would look if somebody went to it. Correct. Okay. So on the left, you've got what looks like a mind map. Right. And uh, you click on index and then all of these different strings popped out of it. And you've got index, a string going up to 145 admin, alphabetical, why are we here? And then on the right side, you've got what looks like more like a, a standard text search type function. And now you're punching into the text so search. So I'm putting in, I'm, I'm using an index entry, which makes it much easier to search for, because otherwise you'll get a lot of, of hits. Yeah. But it, if I put in I colon systemic, then okay. it's only looking for index entries related, that have the word systemic. And so it's coming up with systemic risk, systemic climate risk, systemic change, systemic risk as business risk. It's going through all the different uh, categories of um, of index entries. Mm-hmm. And if I click on one of Whoa. them, in other okay. words, systemic climate risk, that jumps you into a, a part of the climate web that basically allows you to then explore a whole series of sub issues right. relating to uh, systemic risk and allows you to jump over into the climate change literature around systemic risk. Okay. And it's a little bit intimidating. So let's try to describe it. What popped up here was you had a, a little window that says I colon systemic risk and then below that you've got all these categories that popped up with different colored dots next to them and then what are these on the left? S is sources so this is documents and great literature journal papers N is news stories and and opinion pieces G is graphics oh wow T is networks Mm -hmm. and K is a knowledge base which is basically where we pull in sort of systemic risk thinking from different documents. Mm -hmm. And we put all of the information around systemic risk in one place. Let's say I wanted to research a specific topic like I, because you've got deep dive. I don't, maybe I don't want to do deep dive. I want to do business oriented, business risk. Right. So one of the sub index entries is I colon systemic risk as business risk. And so if you click on that, it takes you to another index, indirect impacts as business risk that takes you to other information, economic political disruption as Mm -hmm. business risk, which is a subset of systemic risk. But it also gives you other subcategories, food system shocks, supply chain disruption as business risk, economic political Disruption. Yeah, and I would. Yeah, I would. I would be interested in either food or supply chain. So you click on food so you system. So click shocks. on food system risks, and what this does is then point you to those documents that are specific to this idea of, of shocks to the system, to the food system. And this pulls up a report, for example, this Lloyd's report from 2015, which then opens up as the PDF, so you can read it here if you want to. But this is one of the first reports to really get into this systemic risk issue. And it, what they look at is what if three simultaneous droughts occur in three breadbaskets of the world? Mm-hmm. Not extraordinary droughts, just simultaneous droughts. Mm-hmm. And they did the first scenario assessment of what that might mean for food prices and political stability. And they basically conclude that it's uh, a, a pretty calamitous right, yeah. outcome. And we've pulled out, as you can see, a few sort of key... Okay. Ideas, key graphics. Let me just describe the this. report. Yeah. So you, when you go, when the you, you the report comes up and you've got these uh, brain stems coming off of it or whatever they call these things, and it looks like an outline. So you've got the. It, it looks like you've basically taken the report itself and you've transposed it into this form. So I can now right. We've pulled out a few things. We can't literally pull out all the stuff because that would end up turning into an intellectual property situation. Uh But under sort of the idea of fair use, Mm -hmm. we have pulled out certain paragraphs, certain graphics, certain figures. So you can get a pretty good sense of what's going on in the report, but you can also jump into the full report if you want to read the full report. But no, but this is great because if, did you come up with this 
because of your own work as a researcher, knowing what you how you sought information and what you knew was missing, or what what made you? Yeah, and this is the, the this is called brain software, and it's commercial software. We're the first people to try and do something like this with mm. this software. But I've used this software for more than ten years in my personal professional life. So I have a personal brain mm. that has all the work I've ever done and all the papers I've written and all the PowerPoints I've ever given. And basically, if, if something happened to that brain and if all the backups, either I, what I tend to say is either retirement or Harakiri <laughs> would be my only options because it's so important to my personal institutional memory. Mm -hmm. gotcha. and, and so I just see this kind of thing as immensely valuable if you want to know what's going on in a topic area. So I'm at this, we're at this report, we've got the Lloyd's report, and let's say we click on one of these, maybe the shock scenario or... Right, yeah. so if you click on that, you can see the graphic there that they have in the report and then some of the subsidiary impacts and graphics that are in the report so all the, describing this shock scenario. Okay, so you click on the one, you've got a long excerpt, and then you've got this graphic on economic impacts. And if you click on the destabilized Europe... In this case, no. Okay. As you can see, there are no more green filled in dots. You can from the fact there are no green filled in dots that, that this is the end of the road. There's okay. nothing here. Now, this could in principle link to an index entry having to do with European climate impacts. Okay. We just, that we haven't done that. Gotcha. So you could continue to link these thoughts to other things, but, or this could be linked and it, and it should be linked to terrorism. So just for example, if I take this thought and type in K space terror, it will bring up any knowledge base headings that have terrorism in them, and there don't seem to be any. But if I do conflict, human conflict impacts. Okay, great. So let me just double click on that. And now you can see there's a green dot there. So now that piece of information, that paragraph is now available to anybody who comes to the human conflict impacts knowledge base. Or you can, Bridge. in the search field, you can type in the word terror, mm -hmm. and it'll basically bring up all of the thoughts in the climate web that have the word terror mm -hmm. in the main thought field. Okay. And and there are a lot of them. Okay. And let's see if I'm going back, so looking at systemic risk again, can we go back to where yeah. we started? We started with this broad thing, and then we dove into this one report, and you're just clicking back. And just using the backspace arrow. Mm -hmm to, to okay. basically go back right. to where we started, mm -hmm. systemic climate risk. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what would be, what would you, do you have a suggestion on one we can dive into here or? The, the literature is really very interesting. So if you take a look under the, the heading systemic or climate change systemic risk, the, you can just follow the literature as it's evolved in the last few years, this 2017 Giraud is actually one of the really seminal pieces in mm -hmm. this space. It's only a couple of years uh, old. And if you click on that, they're basically doing economic modeling around the potential impacts of climate change. And they are concluding that it that their system just tends to collapse. Mm -hmm. And they're having a lot of trouble doing the modeling in a way that doesn't lead to uh, collapse. Wow. And, but there's, you can just scroll through the literature, which is generally speaking, chronologically organized. So we can start with the most recent in work. And uh, hunger first signs of a new trend. So you hover over each because it's a pretty small and condensed title, but you hover over it and you get the, the full right. title. And you then you decide, the full, okay. Then you decide whether you want to open it and, and potentially take a look at it and potentially because in some cases, we haven't had the opportunity to extract information mm -hmm. of 15,000 documents in here. But in this case, what you can do is just see the actual PDF and just very quickly scan and see whether it's interesting to you. And, and basically what we've done is gone through Google in tens of thousands of hours of searching to pull together the stuff that is directly relevant to thinking about climate scenarios and climate futures. And so you're much more likely to find what you're looking for than just doing a Google. That was my next question is why is this, what's the advantage to this over Google? You put it, if you Google systemic risk, you'll get a hundred million hits. Uh -huh. And you'll look at the first three of them on the first page, and that's just not the right way 
to randomly you'll issue. randomly see the first ones right and that this enables you to see it find it in a more systemic way we've pulled we've systematically looked for the systemic climate risk literature and mm -hmm. organized it in a way that it, it becomes immediately accessible okay how long did this take? Overall, we've got about 20,000 hours mm -hmm. into the system, covering, covering everything from the psychology of climate change to climate scenario planning to impacts to social activism and when social movements tend to form and will we see social movements form around climate change. All of that stuff is covered. Mm -hmm. And uh, how would this compare to going to the library? It is, well, it's like having your own private library. <laughs> if you want to go to the library for the next 20,000 hours, you could. <laughs> and if you had a background in climate change for 30 years, you could replicate. The, the problem is nobody does that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember when you first showed this to me and I set out to try to research a specific story and then I ended up approaching it, treating it like Facebook. I just kept getting pulled into different issues and found it, I found it, I don't know if enjoyable is the right word, but I definitely, addictive might be a better word, I found it, because one thing leads to another leads to another. Well, that's with 3,000 index entries from the Zika virus at the end to attribution at the front or whatever, pretty much any climate change issue is in here in the index. And you, because it's all webbed together, you literally can spend a few minutes and, and just go through hundreds of links, or you could spend years exploring the thing. And yeah, one of the real benefits of realizing that there are all sorts of related issues to a topic that you might have thought you were looking for, mm -hmm. but you'd never quite thought about those related issues or right. those related impacts. And the way that we've built the index makes it possible to, to basically do that just by clicking through. Mm -hmm. Just for example, what are the, you know, basically the 25 conversations where people are arguing among themselves as, as to what is the solution to climate change. And there are lots of those arguments going on yeah. and they're all here in, in one place and you can actually dig into any of them. Right. If you really wanted to solve climate change, what we've tried to do is build the underlying database that would allow you or a team of people to really strategize the pieces on the climate chessboard. And what is it that we could really move? How should we be thinking about a thousand piece chessboard and making progress on a thousand piece chessboard, which is really what we're dealing with climate change. Mm -hmm. But as long as everyone is simply focused on their individual piece that they see as the most important piece, we just don't get anywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we'll talk more just about how it came to be. How did you create this thing? What was the impetus for this? When did it start? And what I'd already used the software, but I was at a business conference in New York about seven, eight years ago, big business conference. And the authors of this book called Influencer, The Power to Change Anything, got up and, and gave a presentation on their research into human decision-making. And by implication, how do you influence human decision-making? And what they basically said was that no matter what the decision that you're making, you're asking yourself the same two questions. And it was basically, is it worth it to me and can I do it? And it doesn't matter whether you're considering quitting smoking or launching nuclear weapons. It's exactly the same two questions. Mm -hmm. And different people need different answers to those two questions. And as I was watching this, I'd been a management consultant at that point for 15 years. But I said to myself, boy, do we do a terrible job in the climate change space of helping people answer those two questions. Mm -hmm. We go in, we tell people why we've had an epiphany. We expect them to walk out with an epiphany. Human mind just does not work that way. Uh -huh. And so they gave this presentation and I started building the climate web the next day with the idea that how could you help people answer their is it worth it, can I do it questions around climate change. That's Mark Trexler wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet, coming to you today from Remscheid, Germany. A final reminder, if you like what you hear, on this show, if you like Bionic Planet and you want to hear more and better episodes, then help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. The web address, again, is not the Bionic Planet website, but the Patreon website, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com 
forward slash bionic planet. If you want to make a larger donation, I'm also fiscally sponsored through Manga Bay as a nonprofit, which means you can make a tax-deductible donation, which can help me generate a lot of episodes and even contract a sound designer or a second set of ears. For that, you can email me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. Finally, you can help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Remscheid, Germany. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.